AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's how we own it! What's up, family? It's your girl, Tamika D. Mallory. It's your boy, my son, the general. And we're your hosts of Street Politicians, the, the place, place where, where the streets, streets and politics meet. So it's Thanksgiving, and, you know, obviously we all love the family time and the food and all yeah. the good things, but... Love that food. Yeah, but you know, I've never, I don't know, since I was a kid, my parents kind of messed me up because they like celebrate this stuff, but then they talk about the history of why we shouldn't be celebrating it. Some things, they don't celebrate everything. There's a lot of things my parents would never, like you, we never, maybe twice in my life that I have a Halloween because they, you know, talked about how during that time of year, Black folks were being lynched and killed and like they, you know, made it very clear that Halloween night was not a good time for Black people, especially in the South. And so, you know, even thinking about Thanksgiving and, you know, this is something started, I think, in like 1620 or 1621. Uh, and it was the first meal of the pilgrims coming to America. And it's like 
There's so many, there's so much, and, and they called it the new world, right? And it's just so much history that yeah. is, that most people don't know. And it's so, it, it takes, actually, we should really have some Black historians to come on and talk about how holidays that we celebrate now are, are, are holidays that were started by people who were also colonizers. Let's just say that's, that's the most simple way that I can say it without trying to act like I'm a historian. Like these people were colonizers, right? So they were stealing land, stealing people, enslaving people, and then, you know, creating holidays along the way which have now become part of capitalism in our society, spending a whole lot of money to celebrate holidays that colonizers started. Sometimes, some holidays, they actually were like Veterans Day. That actually is a holiday that, that Black people started. But mm -hmm. they these colonizers, like with everything else, take over the holidays and make them white holidays and then attach capitalism to them. And really we lose the essence of like how these things really began and where it came from and what was the real history, whether the history is good or bad. So I think we would do our, we wouldn't be doing service or a good service to our audience, not to mention the controversy around the idea of Thanksgiving and tell folks that they should do the research where they can do like my family, Talk about the issues with the colonizers and what happened to the Native Americans, if you will. They weren't Native Americans. They were just Native people to the land um, before folks arrived and started their Thanksgiving. So, yeah. I mean, it's a lot. I think for me, I've been indoctrinated into these holidays for so long. You know, my kids love Halloween and I and I felt like the bad guy because as I become became more knowledgeable and understanding the history, I wanted to be like, man, I'm not doing no Halloween. You know what I'm saying? But it's something that they love. They love going to get their candy and they love to go door to door. So I, I, I didn't want to personally take that from them. You know, I want to educate them as they get older on what the actual meaning of Halloween and where, where it comes from. So I always want them to be informed and knowledgeable about what's going on. Also with Halloween, it's, it's something that my family, you know, always celebrated. It was like probably the, my favorite day of the year. You know, I seen all of my cousins and aunts and uncles that I never hadn't seen all year. It was just that one day we would all go to one of our family members' house and we would eat and we would laugh and we'd joke and you'd see your favorite uncle and your favorite cousin. Halloween or Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving. Oh, I said Halloween. Oh, I, I said Halloween first, and I said. Oh, Halloween. then you said like Halloween again, because I was sitting here like. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Listen, what am I talking? I mean Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, yeah, sure. Thanksgiving. So that was one of the things, and and as we we get the knowledge and understand how the natives were slaughtered during this time, it's definitely something not something that we really want to celebrate. But you know, we don't want to take away that family camaraderie as at the same time. So. You know, it's it's like we have to teach the history, right? At the same time. And I think that's with every area. We have to teach the history because while you know we're celebrating it, and I guess I have some hesitancy because it feels and we talk about being walking contradictions every day. 
because you know it feels so to think of the native people to this land and to know that this time represents for so many of them as you said a time when their people were slaughtered it represents a time when everything that they once knew was taken from them and then a holiday was created and people celebrated without even really discussing the nature of like the remembrance of the Thanksgiving holiday in this and this time period. And so I just, you know, I think you're right. You have to teach the history of these holidays and so much history to your children so that when you are really kind of just taking a day off from work, getting a day off from work and getting family together, that it's not lost on us as a people, everything that this country has done and how we, um, you know, I guess how we have to respond to capitalism when we're not respected as full citizens still, you know, and we talk about the native people and now we call them native Americans, but even we as black people in this nation have never received our full rights and been respected properly. And so, you know, they use these holidays because they like our $1.5 trillion. That's right. And I think that's that's what actually was the catalyst behind my boycott and, and boycotting Black-owned businesses. You know, I think we're seeing what happened with Kyrie. And I think just listening to the CEO, his his verbiage and just responding and the way he spoke of Kyrie, it was it's like somebody that he didn't even see as a human being. He'd seen him more as property. You know, we, we, we chose to just, just disregard this person. You had a, a, a you know, a, a partnership with somebody and because of one misstep or mishap, you know, you chose that, you know, I'm willing to lose hundreds of millions of dollars, millions of dollars if need be to show that I have some level of power. And that, that that really bothered me, understanding that what if this is the only way that Kyrie was able to feed his family? What if all of these things negatively affected him and nobody cared about him as an individual? And I'm like, damn, I don't see people do that to their own culture. You know, right. they only do it to our culture. So I said, you know what? We have to start empowering our culture so we're able to make those breakages, or those, you know, we're able to separate from organizations and people who don't mean us well. So I said, I, know, first, though, I have to push back on that. I feel like maybe it doesn't happen as often. And I don't have in this minute, uh, several examples, right? Just because it's not something that I watch, but I know that there's been NBA teams that, or NBA owners that have been forced to sell their teams for saying racist things. I know that there have been endorsement deals by, you know, some um, uh, athletes who've lost endorsement deals because of domestic violence and or, again, racist comments or whatever. So I, I'm not going to say that this, that they that they never hold white folks accountable because I that's, that, that's not my conversation. I'm looking at I'm looking at what he's being told, you know, what he's being accused of in the level of the punishment, right? So when you talk about those, when you talk about those owners, those owners have full text message when they're calling people niggas. They have, they have, video, they have that, yeah. Like, 
Like they have whole, and, and the thing is, they're selling it to their friends. They, you got to sell the company. They still making money off of it at the bottom line. So these are, all of this is a game. You understand what I'm saying? It's, it's really just a game that they, they running. That we know, I know the game that they run. Okay, I got to sell this to my friend. I got to be in the cut because they caught me being racist. All me and all my friends is racist anyway because they just didn't catch the email that he sent to me. But I'm the one that got caught. So we all going to play in this game. So I know that game you're playing. But, it, it is, but it's actually your words and it's actually vulgar. It's to the point where it's like, damn, we can't even sit in the same room because we know that you're, you had ill intention. And you felt these, you felt very negatively. That, that's when there's accountability. But for somebody, a lot of these, these owners are friends with racists, known racists, KKK members. They, they fund those things. They're in rooms with them. They, they're in close proximity to things that is anti-Black all the time. And there's no accountability to that, right? So for, for Kyrie to be held to that standard for posting up a, a, a damn documentary where 90% was about black history and, and a couple of the instances in there probably was something that he didn't even pay attention to because it wasn't something that he was focused on. You know what I'm saying? And, and okay, we, we give him the accountability. He apologized. You give him maybe a game or two or whatever it is, but to completely sever ties with that man from million dollar businesses and, and um, um, partnerships that he had because you say he stepped over the line like he's some type of boy or some type of kid it, it was it didn't even make sense to me so understanding that that's a possibility that they can do stuff like that made me say to myself i can't i can't knowingly allow that to continue to keep happening to me right i can't be aware that there are people that can cut ties with me, cut ties with people that look like me, people that are start works in our culture, people that we idolize in the culture, and we haven't created anything or funded anything that can make sure that they can still feed their children. Like for me, that's just not okay. So I say, you know what? First of all, I'm not buying anything Nike again. And I was one of the of major supporters of Nike. First of all, I'm not, I'm personally not buying it again. I don't really see when I never even wear any things that I bought again but secondly i want us as a people to to normalize holding people accountable who don't value us right why are we giving our our dollars to people who we know do not value us how do we how why aren't we able to say i'm not going to spend thousands of dollars with people who are able to lose millions of dollars just so that they can make a point about how they're not going to deal with certain type of behaviors from us so why can't we say i'm not going to even give my money to somebody right we i'm not going to continue to make somebody a billionaire i don't know why we don't think that we need to show that we have some level of respect for ourselves because if we don't respect ourselves, how can we expect anybody to respect us? So I'm, I propose on my page that we stop buying Nike, at least for this holiday season. I personally, I don't ever see me doing it again, but I'm saying those who need to see it in increments to understand the power that you have, say for this whole holiday season, starting, with, um, starting from last week when I first said to do it, I wanna make sure that, that Black Friday is us buying black. It's making sure that we invest in black um, companies and organizations. So I've been posting mad, crazy different black owned businesses on my pages so that you can go to, that you can support, that you can spend your black dollar with your black individual organization and your black people so we can watch the, the black dollar flourish through our community. And then I, I'm continuously doing that. And I'm saying, I want you to see your power. I want you to understand that Black Friday is 
is, is generally when we go out and spend the most money. So why are we investing in our own communities? Why are we, are we investing? We got sneakers that's way better than Nike. But for somehow we've trained our minds that if we don't have these Nikes, there's some level of status we lose or continuing to, to make these people billionaires that don't even value us is, is it makes sense. So I'm, I'm, I said to myself, I know I'm an avid Nike buyer and I want to discipline myself. I want to prove to myself that I, I'm, I work, I'm worth more than these sneakers are. You know, I'm worth more than this status quo is. I, I feel violated, so I'm willing to sacrifice something. So I'm asking everybody, continue on. Black After Thanksgiving, Black Friday, don't go out and spend your, find a Black organization, find a Black company, find some Black sneakers to buy. They have, go to my page, you'll see hundreds of people that you can go to. And you can see, Yeah, because I'm going to have, by the, by the time, tomorrow, I'm going to have 100 people on it, because I probably got about 40 or 50 different organizations that you can go to. Talking about, yeah, it's about 40 or 50 different places, and, I, and they're not organizations, they're companies. No, organizations, some of them is companies. Yeah, or, organizations have a mission, or they should have a mission to some provide people. some type of service. Companies are for benefits, and that's good. We should have all those dynamics, but dynamics. But these people, and that's, and the reason why I'm making the distinction. Well, we have an organization and we have clothing, right? And well, yeah. I mean, of course you could buy things. All organizations you have. That's what I'm that's saying. That's true. That's true. I'm not saying that's true. Flat out, that's true. However, the bigger point is that there are a lot of companies that we're posting, that you're posting, um, and we need to make sure that those companies understand that money is being pushed in their direction and they got to do business, right? Yes, exactly. Somebody just sent me a whole link with about 60 different high-end Black-owned um, clothing Designs. companies. Yeah. Do business, guys and do girls. Do good business, please. Do good do business. Do quality business. That's the reason why I said that. But you're right. I stand corrected. There are organizations, not just Until Freedom, but many who have their own merch and t-shirts and things of that nature. So that's important. But I was specifically focusing on the companies and making sure that these companies are doing good business with the, the clientele um, and making sure that people can reach you, you know, and that your, your information, your financial uh, collection stuff is good. You know, your e-commerce is set up properly. Like, please make sure that you do all of that. Most of the companies are, I already ordered something. Um, so most of the companies are, but there are some who still need to get their, their things together. And it's okay to say, hey, well, I'm working on this and I'll be ready in two weeks, three weeks or whatever. Um, but I'm not necessarily ready to start taking orders that I can't fulfill because I don't have the shoes. I don't have the merchandise. Like, let's be for real so that, you know, it's a good experience. Now, of course, we have to have patience because we know that our people do not benefit from uh, the way that capitalism operates with white folks and big businesses uh, like a Nike or any other kind of business. We don't have that. So we are trying to get ourselves to that level. And sometimes it takes a little bit of patience, but doing bad business is never acceptable no matter what level you are at. Definitely have to do good business. So 
You know, we, we're going to show our economic power this holiday season. You know, we're going to divest and invest in us, man. So buy black, man. Go to my page and you'll see all of the black designers there. So many from high end, you know, um, shoes and clothing to sports and athletic wear, whatever you need. We got it on my page, man. Buy black. Speaking of, of you know, buying black, caring for ourselves as black people. We talk on the show a lot about black women's health. Uh, we had coach Jesse on. Now we have another guest that's coming up. And, you know, I think it, it's so important because we're trying to focus on everything, our mental, our pocketbook, our physical. We're trying to make sure that even our brothers get an opportunity to learn about women's health because that has been such a disconnect just like you mentioned in the last show, you never even knew that there was a reason for you to care about these things. That was women's business to take care of. But we want to normalize conversations around health disparities and around, you know, things that, um, you know, women, ways in which women take care of themselves, need to take care of themselves. Um, and really just making sure that as we talk about our economic power, we're not uh, rich and sick, you know, rich and dead, you know, you know. Have things, yeah, we have things and don't have life. And so this Thanksgiving season, whatever, I think that there's another term that folks started calling. I know Friendsgiving, 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 family giving. During this time, a big part of it is making sure you have for tomorrow when you walk into your family home and you're about to pick up that that whatever with the um uh queen of fools said what you eat also impacts a woman's reproductive system so when you put in that good macaroni and cheese and all of that good stuff that i plan to eat in your mouth just know that it's also impacting your body let's go to our guest <laughs> there's a lot happening these days but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. 
alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. That's how we own it! So at least, you know, we now have started to bring new friends on to the show because the last few weeks has been a lot of new friends joining us and people who uh, quickly become family because they're doing such incredible, incredible, incredible things. Um, you know, Black folks is just doing it. And I love the fact that our show, you know, unapologetically focuses on Black excellence. And certainly our guest today is an excellent Black woman, uh, Dr. Simone. Uh, most of you know her from being on the show Married to Medicine, but there's so much more to this woman born in Nashville, uh, went to Spelman College, and you know all the greats went to Spelman, yes. my child, the Morehouse, so all the greats. Um, yes. to Spellman and an OBGYN who is also an activist in her own right for Black women. She has a family, a husband that you've seen on the show. She's got two children, so much with this woman. And we're going to learn more today about Dr. Simone. Thank you so much for joining Street Politicians. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be here. It is definitely an honor to have you. Man. How are you feeling today? I am doing great and would love to just share some of the things that I have learned over the years about Black women's health and the importance of Black women taking care of ourselves and putting ourselves as number one. Well, so, speaking of taking care of ourselves, you tell us about you, because we don't know. <laughs> we see you on the show and we, we see this beautiful, dynamic Black woman, but we don't know about your background and how you got started. Mm -hmm. I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee, born and raised. I was born and raised by two, a two-parent home with an alcoholic dad. My mom divorced him around the time I was 15, 16 years old. But early in my life, probably 8 to 10 years old, he just wasn't as functional as a dad 
couldn't keep a job, wasn't home a lot when he was home, uh, highly intoxicated. So that was my life. But my mother was really smart. She worked really hard. She kept a full-time job and she took really good care of my sister and I. Education was always what she preached and there were no other options other than education in the household I grew up in. When I was 12 uh, in junior high school, I was asked by my teacher to do a research paper on what I wanted to be when I grew up. And at the time at 12, I knew that I wanted to help handicapped children. Nashville mm -hmm. had something every year called Special Olympics where they would highlight, you know, handicapped children and we would go out, volunteer, participate. And I knew I wanted to be in that arena, helping handicapped children. And I went to my dad and asked him, hey, you know, I have to write this research paper and I want to help handicapped children. And he said, well, I such and such does that. She doesn't make any money. You're going to want to be a children's doctor so you can make money. And I went to the library because at that time we didn't have Google. Um, <laughs> this was in uh, early, uh, late 70s, early 80s. So I went to the library, got the encyclopedia out and found out a children's doctor is a pediatrician. And I patterned the rest of my school into becoming a pediatrician, which, may, which meant taking a science, a math, a foreign language, and English every year, because that was going to be required for me to go to college. college. When I got to high school, I was fortunate enough to have a Black guidance counselor. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, I want you to go to an HBCU. She said, now I sit on the board at Lane. She said, but I want you to aspire to go higher than that, to look at a school like Spelman. So after I did my research on Spelman College, I did a senior weekend at Spelman and knew I was home. Mm -hmm. Now I had to come home and sell it to my mother, who at this time is for sure a single mother. She's thinking she can't afford Spelman College. Most of the people I graduated from high school they went to Tennessee State, Middle Tennessee State, those schools. And so I had to convince my mother that Spelman College was it. We would apply for financial aid and we would just make it happen. And that's exactly what happened. I um, applied to Spelman as a um, early applicant in the senior year, got accepted, didn't apply to any other schools. Wow. attended Spelman and my first year at Spelman. So being on a campus with all, all of these beautiful black women, growing up in Tennessee, it was black, it was white. I didn't see Indians. I didn't see Mexicans. I saw black, I saw white, that was it. My limited little scope of things. So I get to Spelman, I'm seeing all the different beautiful hues of black, but to the yeah. point where I would see one, someone who was very fair skinned. And I would say, oh, okay, so there's a white student. And they would be like, no, she's black. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had to learn that, okay, it doesn't matter what somebody looks like that I'm thinking that they look like. Gotta let that judgment go. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was an amazing experience. I get there as a freshman and every single week, 
we had convocation where we had to go in the chapel and a dynamic black woman who was already out in the community in her career in various cities would come to the chapel and they would speak to us and they would say i had the opportunity to be where you're sitting and look where i am now or i didn't have the opportunity i went to a white school but look where I am now, and you too can be here. It was an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. And just, I had that love and the support of being told you can do it. Mm -hmm. I left Spelman in 1989 and um, went to East Tennessee State Quillen College of Medicine. Now, I'm my whole life, I'm thinking I'm smart, I'm thinking I'm gifted. <laughs> Whoo, got to medical school, medical school kicked some butts. <laughs> and so, you know, it was there that I realized, okay, I'm average. I got to work hard, <laughs> but I'm just average. Oh. And I was the only black female in a class of about 56. And there was one black male in my class, but it was here that taught me so much about Medical school was where I learned the most about racism. I had always known that it existed and felt that I had experienced some minor issues. But medical school was certainly a whole nother challenge. I would walk in um, to a patient's room and they would say to me, I don't have nothing against Young's kind, but I don't want to see you. Mm. And, you know, I would walk back out. I was completely fine with that because I believe that people have the right to see who they want to see. But it was an interesting um, thing. As in medical school, I never shaved my legs. I had hairy legs and I shaved under my arms for purposes of hygiene, but I had never shaved my legs and get to medical school. And we're, you know, going in, doing a history and physical on a patient and the white attending is like, okay, note this patient has poor hygiene. So mm. if the patient did not have shaved legs, mm. among some other things, she would be considered in poor hygiene. Mm. So I started shaving my legs, <laughs> but yeah. you know, because I definitely never had poor hygiene, but it was funny just learning things from a whole nother standpoint and making some adjustments in my own life. Mm. Uh, there were neither, you know, good nor bad, but I did make the adjustments. I left East Tennessee State. I graduated in 1993, left there and went to Boston Medical Center where I was in the heart of the city. Um, seeing patients and doing my residency training in OBGYN. And let me back up because when I entered medical school, I knew I wanted to be a pediatrician. Right, right. I right. got there. There was a little boy uh, during my first rotation of my clinical year, which is the third year. There was a little boy who came in at 10 years old. He had a bicycle accident, fell off the bicycle. He basically came in unresponsive. The ER team worked on him for about an hour and 15 minutes, and they were not able to resuscitate him. I never met his mother, but I could hear her screaming through the ER when she was told that he didn't make it. And I made a decision that day. I called my mother boo-hoo-hooing because I'm, I 
knew that I could not be that one to tell a mother that her child Mm. didn't make it. And from there, I was like, am I going to do surgery? Am I going to do OBGYN? And when I did my OBGYN rotation, I knew that was where God wanted me to be because I loved everything about it. Wow. And um, went, uh, started residency training in Boston. And again, an amazing experience because the majority of the patients were Black. We had a lot of women who were on heroin and cocaine. And um, it was definitely another eye-opener. Growing up in Nashville, I we I grew up on the uh, lower income side, but I never, I never met or saw a drug addict in Nashville. And so here I was in the heart of Boston, um, seeing crack addicts, seeing heroin addicts. And I would see a woman come in, throw her baby out, like literally just push her baby out and leave back out in an hour and leave that baby to the system. Mm-hmm. And so from that, I decided that probably going into a hospital uh, with lower socioeconomic probably wasn't going to work for me emotionally. I left uh, Boston, went to Memphis, Tennessee for private practice for two years. My goal and my dream was to come back to Atlanta. But at the time I left residency in 1997, Atlanta was a very competitive market to get back into. But it was the one place that Cecil and I um, agreed that we could live. I met Cecil as a senior at Spelman. He was a senior at Morehouse College at the time. And we dated that year, broke up because we were young, uh, broke up. I headed on to medical school. He headed back to Los Angeles where he was originally born and raised and took a corporate job. We um, stayed in touch. I called it a fake friendship because I would be like, hey, I called you last night. You weren't home. Did you stay the night out? No, no. I was hanging with the fellas. (laughs) It was a (laughs) fake friendship. And eventually towards the end of medical school, we made an agreement that we would get back together as a couple. We would try the long distance thing. And once I got to Boston, we made a decision that he would relocate to Boston. And he reached out to some Morehouse brothers. They got him a job in Boston. He came. And a year after he came, we got married. Uh, But when we listed, each of us listed five cities that we would be willing to live in. Nashville was on my list of places. Um, Atlanta was on my list of places, but the only city that was on both lists was Atlanta, but I did not get a job. So I interviewed in Houston, Texas, Austin, Texas, Memphis, Tennessee. And I had a sister, my baby sister, the only sister I have, she was in college in Memphis at the time. We made a decision to move to Memphis and I was in private practice in Memphis for two years. And then I landed a job here in Atlanta and I've been in Atlanta ever since 1999. Mm. I love Atlanta. Everybody loves Atlanta. So yeah. you did all of that. How did, how did you end up on TV from having this like professional, like I just, I see like the transformation, like coming from, you know, a well-to-do kind of like well-to-do two family home and just, you know, 
And then you so can't... not well to do. Well, not well keep to... in mind, my dad was an alcoholic and couldn't even have keep a job. But my mother attended Tennessee State. She had a full time job. And I always lived in a two bedroom apartment. We never lived in a house because he couldn't keep a job. Mm. But she made it work. She made it work. But it was but it wasn't uh, you, you. You grew up in a situation where you had support. Yeah, I did. And I that's did. Yes. Yeah. You had support and then you went. Yes, I did. College. You had this beautiful experience. And then you went to when you went to um, medical school, that must when, when I'm hearing how you just realized that racism really existed at that point, And that's that must be. I don't want, I don't even know how I would feel walking into a room and people like, you know, I don't want your kind to deal with me. And this is a profession that I, I wanted to get involved with. That mm-hmm. must have been really tough, man. So how did you make the transition from doing all of those things to TV? How did that even come about? Um, when I came to Atlanta, I came, like I said, in 99. At some point, Real Housewife of Atlanta started. And at the time they started, uh, you know, I was watching, Cecil and I watched a lot of reality TV show, even before that, like Survivors, uh, mm-hmm. American Idol, those kind of shows. Anyway, one day out of the blue, one of my patients who I had also become friends with, she asked me, you know, would you be willing, I'm trying to develop some concepts, would you be willing to audition? So I auditioned two or three years. Um, I had received an email from a lawyer friend of mine who knew that the doctor's show was starting um, on ABC. I auditioned for that. But at the time, never having been in television, never auditioned for anything in television before interviewing for the doctors and now what is called Married to Medicine, I I didn't wear makeup. Other than lipstick, I didn't wear makeup. I didn't wear weave. And so, you know, I'm interviewing without makeup, with without, you know, weave. And finally, on the third edition, the third audition for this concept for Married to Medicine, my girlfriend, she said to me, she said, I want you to get professional makeup. I want you to put on your cutest black dress and give it to them. And so again, it was a concept. I knew I didn't want to be on Housewives. I enjoyed watching them, but I didn't think I had the stamina to be on Housewives. And um, and so I just was like, you know, I don't lose anything by auditioning for this show. I would love to be on TV. And then, boom, I get a call. Hey, you've been chosen for Married to Medicine, Bravo has picked us up and we're gonna shoot a show. So I'm like, okay, bet. Still not knowing exactly what I was getting into, but what I would say, having been on my show now for nine years, is that I love my show. There are some things about it that are amazing and fantastic. And I've certainly been in the room with some people I would not have been in the room with otherwise. And then there's the down part where women you like or you think you trust, we fall out and we're not speaking anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. That has probably been the toughest part of reality TV for me. How many seasons have you been on? Nine. So so it was in nine years. So, okay. I'm one of the OGs. 
Oh, wow. Oh, so you yeah. started from yeah. the beginning. So of nine years, it's a season every year. Is that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a, that's a lot of filming. Um, and we know because we film also for mm -hmm. things and we filmed a lot of, um, of, of the, not this season, but the season prior of um, Love and Hip Hop because yeah. they, were, they were with us in Kentucky while we were uh, fighting for Breonna Taylor. Yes, so I remember cast, seeing that. Yeah, the cast members joined us. And so we did a lot. And I tell you, so much of it is hurrying up to wait. You know, everybody's got a hurry, hurry, hurry. And then you do nothing but sit around and wait to actually film the show. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lot of work. But do you have regrets? Because I know that it's taking you away from your children at times. Uh, obviously, you know, we all know that there's been challenges in your marriage that played out on TV. Like, do you have regrets that your whole life has sort of been on the big screen? Or are you at this point just like, you know, it is what it is. And the other thing is coming from Nashville, you are very, very assertive. Um, just, you know, watching you here, you would, one would think, okay, you came from, I don't know exactly where in Nashville, but a town in Nashville, maybe you wouldn't be the person to decide to become a doctor because, you know, mm -hmm. perhaps you might not want to go in the rooms, as my son said, but then, okay, you overcome that. Now you go and you, after all these other things, you get on TV and decide to, to put yourself out there. It's very, very mm -hmm. empowering for someone who's sitting in Na Nashville or a country town around this country that they could become very much like you if they take chances. I think that it is important, number one, to surround yourself by people of like mind who are who aspire to be successful and to be the best that they can be at whatever it is a person chooses. It just so happened for me, my love was science mm. and medicine was the next best step for me. But what I say is that being on TV has definitely had its challenges but I come as my authentic self. I don't try to pretend to be somebody that I'm not. I don't try to act out in a way that I wouldn't act out in my normal life without the camera. Um, it is a very taxing four months out of the year when we film because you're busy. And I tell anybody, it's like working two full-time jobs at the same time. We have had the same production company for nine years and they accommodate my schedule as a doctor. So everyone understands that I'm in solo practice. I share night and weekend call with some other ladies, but not the daytime. And so in the daytime, if I'm filming and I say to the production crew, hey, my lady is 10 centimeters, she's feeling pressure, I gotta go. Everybody just understands and they get it. And, you know, the production crew, they get excited. Uh, they have rigged my car with cameras so that they can, you know, see me drive down to the hospital and fuss at the people in traffic to get out of my way so I can hurry up and get to my baby. But again, that part of it has been amazing. Now, there are are some parts where you know production says hey show up at seven 
p.m. and you get there at seven and they're not ready for you. They're not going to be ready until seven, seven forty-five. That's what this is for. So in my car, my laptop is there. Every time I head somewhere, my laptop is there um, because you learn how to utilize that extra 30, 45 minutes until they're ready for you. Uh, I'm a people. You are, you are a real medical doctor. Like absolutely um, not just a TV doctor. You That's actually right. a real medical professional. That's right. I am board certified in OBGYN and I have been in private practice since 1997. Wow. How many yes. have you delivered? What do you think about you, you know, range? Like I said, I've been in private practice since 1997 and I deliver about 180, 200 babies a year. Wow. Mm-hmm. So since COVID, how, how has COVID like impacted the OBGYN profession? Or how do you see it impact, especially Black women? How do you, how you see that playing out? I think COVID truly highlighted the health care disparities with African-Americans, baby, we are at the top of the list for everything that gets ignored. So I feel like now my schedule is just overflowing with Black women who want to see a Black woman. Mm-hmm. And that was something I had never felt in my career. Yes, sometimes a patient would come in and say, Oh, I was looking for a black doctor and I found you. But the majority of the time, uh, patients come in and just say, oh, you were in my zip code or my insurance company said you were on my plan. And now the majority of the women I see new patients, they have sought specifically sought out a black female. Um, George Floyd's death. And not to discount anybody else's like Breonna Taylor or Maude Arbery, but George Floyd's death and COVID how, how really brought to the forefront and highlighted the disparities that we as African-Americans have by the, the disparities with the police force in the healthcare system. And I think that, again... It is a wonderful thing to see people rise to the occasion, know that something needs to be done. But when I say people, I mean everybody, not just Blacks, also whites. Because this was the first time you even see marketing a little bit different with some of these major companies now and brands. And I think that um, we have suffered a long time we have suffered a lot. And I do feel like some people are trying to make amends. We have a long way to go. But we as Blacks, we have to, we have to own accountability and we have to put ourselves first. And when I say own accountability, you know, when you get pregnant, you really need to, number one, especially with Roe versus Wade being overturned, you need to be in a relationship with somebody you want to have a baby with in today's time. You want to be in the best health. You want to be on your prenatal vitamin. You really want to be at your best weight because when you come into the pregnancy and you're morbidly obese or you're almost morbidly obese, you have a higher risk of everything, higher risk of preterm labor, higher risk of preeclampsia, higher risk of gestational diabetes higher risk of dying in labor and childbirth. And so 
you have to know that you've got to take the best care of yourself. And I'm not saying don't get pregnant if you're overweight, do it, but just know and try to be attentive, be on time to those prenatal visits and follow those to a T. If the doctor asks you to start medication for high blood pressure, start the medication despite your mama telling you not to, because those are the some of the challenges that we have where patients will come in and they'll say, well, my mama said I shouldn't take that medication, but I'm like, you're black, I'm black, and I'm asking you to take the medication. And what I try to reassure my patients, I don't come in with a bunch of medical jargon. I talk to you as if you were my best girlfriend, if you were my sister, um, because I want you to understand that you and I are the same. We are no different. And I take care of you because I love my job mm. and for no other reason. So you find, so you have found that, um, I guess what I'm hearing you say on the accountability piece, and it is always very triggering when we hear people talking about black folks taking accountability because we feel like we're always we always have to be accountable for everything and we are forced to um you know we, i guess we we deal with the harshest of society everything but when i hear when i hear it in the context of which you were just saying you got to take care of yourself if you're going to get pregnant right now again like you said roe v wade has been overturned Many states are having issues with the right to choose. We even have issues where, um, you know, people are unable to get access to birth control. So if you're having sex, you have to make the right decisions. Make sure that whomever you're engaging with is someone that's taking care of themselves so that they can take care of you and your body must be taken care of. You know, uh, you, you just said your weight you talked about your prenatal vitamins. I know so many young women that don't take prenatal vitamins. They don't take them at all, you know? And then once they have a baby, there are other challenges that exist in terms of how they're still either taking care of themselves and their baby or not. And so from that perspective, accountability sounds right. You know, it sounds right. We have to be smarter about the decisions that we make. And I wonder... As you're in this field, do you find yourself being more, like you said, good girlfriend? You know, do you find yourself being like a therapist for so many women? And, and not so much that you're unable to do your job, but you spend a lot of time being drained by having to wear those, that hat of, of counseling and coaching women along. So let me say that it is not draining. And, and I do often get in trouble when I say accountability, but in a major metropolitan area like Atlanta, all of these young people, they have cell phones. So if some doctor gives you a diagnosis, I need for you to get on Google. We're Googling everything else. We're Googling the lyrics to this song. We're Googling the latest trend in outfits. Get on Google write down the name of you know this disorder or disease that the doctor has given you get on google do some research about that disease be able to come the next time and ask questions and say hey you said that how did you come to this conclusion what are my treatment options oh you only gave me one treatment option but i read over here 
There are two other ones. How do you feel about that? And understanding that we have choices. You don't get the right answer with Dr. A. It's time to head on over to Dr. B. I know that everyone doesn't have access. I know that, um, and we're not all, I feel like I'm a teacher. I'm an educator in my job. I am a therapist in my job. And what I try to do is help women understand. I, I had a patient one time, boo-hoo-hooing. She had gotten pregnant by someone she was dating for less than six months. They broke up during the pregnancy. He had moved on, got a new girlfriend. Now she has the baby and he's telling her that he wants a DNA test. And she was so upset and so angry. And I said to her, I said, listen, I said, if I, I have two sons. And so a DNA re request, even though you know you have been with him, it, it is not an unreasonable request that he's asking. And also for legal reasons, once you have that declared that he is the father, you can hold him accountable financially, that sort of a thing. So this is not a negative thing mm -hmm. that he's asking you, but I try to just have empathy when I'm talking to my patients, but I also try to get them to sure. take some accountability too for actions. And what are we going to do differently moving forward with the next guy that we choose to have sex with? My friend don't have sex. I was a young person who had sex, but let's, let's go into the relationship thinking of me, myself, and I mm -hmm. when we enter that relationship. So it must, like, go ahead, I mean, it must be a lot because when, when I'm listening to you, right, I, I have a fear. Like, I, I have phobias of, like, doctors and all types of things like that. So a lot mm -hmm. of us are scared to ask questions, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of us are scared to go against the doctor. If the doctor says something, you don't, you know, you you just go with what the doctor says. You don't, you don't really question it. A lot of us have that. Do you find that a lot of people that you deal with have those same issues, that you have to give them levels of courage to even inquire about their health? One of the reasons I work so hard on my bedside manner is to break down that barrier. If you see me like I'm your friend, like we could kick it, because at the end of the day, I'm a human being just like you are. If you see me like that, I think it helps to to humanize doctors and know that, okay, I can ask her questions. And I also think it helps the patients realize in any other setting. So that's the relationship I have with my OBGYN. I need to look for that relationship with the primary care doctor, with the cardiologist, with the endocrinologist. And what I always remind patients is that different doctors have different personalities. That's okay, but in a major metropolitan area like Atlanta, D.C., Houston, you got options, and don't just settle if somebody is asking you, if you're asking a question and somebody is not answering those questions. And again, Google is a good source of information, but if you can't go in to your doctor and discuss what you read on Google, that's a problem. And the more and more that we educate young people, you know, even when I give the opportunity to give lecture and there are older people in the room, I, again, I keep it simple. When we talk about cardiovascular disease with strokes and heart attacks, 
I tell them, if you know every Sunday you going by the Popeyes, we got a problem because the Popeyes is not the best thing for you. And we got to do more fruits and vegetables, fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm. And just talking to people and educating in a way that we get it. It's mm. not that complicated. It's not that threatening, but in a way that we can reach the masses. Yeah. Well, listen, I am, I can hear from the way in which you're speaking that you're the type of doctor that doesn't run out of the room in five minutes. Cause you know, no. most, most doctor's offices, they back it up 10 minutes with the patient, which includes actually doing the physical portion <laughs> right. and the conversation. And right. that is also OBGYNs. I've had many um, that I, you know, that I did not, um, I didn't feel, I didn't, I just didn't feel protected, respected, or even mm. seen. Um, and, you know, it, it, as I've gotten older, in fact, I was on a, I did a show with Jada Pinkett Smith, a Red Table Talk, um, uh -huh some time back and there was a woman there who broke down how dangerous it is for your doctor not to pay attention and spend time with you and how that led to some very serious health challenges that she had. And I left there and made a decision that I would not go back to the doctor that I had because she just didn't treat me well, you know, and I, right. I just, honestly, I didn't even like her. And I always thought like my son growing up, it didn't matter. It was like a transaction. You just go to the doctors. You don't have to like them. You just go, you get done no. whatever it is. They can be rude to you. It doesn't matter because it's just the no. doctor. But I've learned that a relationship with your doctor is super important. So you talked about spreading your message to the world. And now you have a book that I've heard. I think that you're not telling folks the name of the book yet, but do we know what the book is about and how do people stay in touch with you other than watching your show what are some other ways that folks can stay in touch with you to you know learn more about the tips of taking care of themselves as black women mm -hmm. so uh number one Cecil and I were writing a couple's book because we have been married for 26 years and we wanted to be able to share some of the nuggets that have kept us together I filed for a divorce in 2017. We were having some marital problems that I didn't think we were gonna be able to overcome. And let me say, if it were not for reality TV and for the, the couples that are on my show, that believe in marriage, that believe in sticking it through the tough times, Cecil and I would not have made it. We are both very, very stubborn people. We're headed down um, a divorce track, not angry. He wasn't angry, I wasn't angry, um, but just, you know, we had backed up in our corner, like I'm not gonna compromise with you anymore. And it, it was the cast that got in our faces during a reunion, I think season five, they got in our faces and helped us realize that we should be fighting for our marriage, just like they were fighting for our marriage, both of us. And we hadn't dealt with anything that was significant enough that we should have even been going through a divorce in the first place. But I am a woman who wallows in my pettiness, <laughs> in my feelings. And that was uh, part of the struggle. But let me say that I am on uh, most of the social media platforms, 
uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I don't spend a lot of time on social media. Um, and I, you know, most of my posts are social. They're not medical. When I get the opportunity, wherever I'm asked to come and give a medical lecture, I do that. One year I came to a room full of midwives and doulas. Uh, I was asked to come there by the one of the women who helped put that event on and I got booed. I got booed when I talked about black women taking some accountability and learning to go on Google. Um, I got booed when I stated that, yes, a doula is welcome in the delivery room, but she has to know her place. There's a place for the doula who has a certificate in training and there's my place who has a doctorate in medicine and who had a residency training for four years. And we're not on the same level, but the goal of the patient should be the same. And there should not be an antagonistic relationship in the delivery room. Um, again, how I know that, the type of go? care. How did that? It didn't go well. It didn't go didn't well. Go well. They, they were angry. Yeah, yeah, it didn't go well. But I, but again, I, I, I stood by what I said because I know the type of doctor I am. I'm not spending five minutes with my patients. And I try to connect on a level that's personal. Tell me what your Thanksgiving plans are. Tell me, you know, um, and like I saw a patient this morning who she's had three deaths, three family deaths in a very short period of time. And I said to her, are you in grief counseling? Have you thought about it? And I said to her, when my dad died in 2016, I got in grief counseling. And so, and people, even before I was on TV, people heard about my husband, my children, mm -hmm. because again, it's a whole human connection that we should be having. And you shouldn't just think of me as some sterile person out there. I don't wear a white coat in the office mm -hmm. because I don't want the stigma that someone might place on me. I don't want you to come in and have high blood pressure because you're anxious about coming to see me. That's not what I want our relationship to be based on. Well, we appreciate you, Dr. Simone. You're very unique. That is absolutely for sure. You're unique as a doctor, unique to be a doctor who is also on TV. Um, and, you know, you, I think there is so much listening to you. It is very clear that, and you said you're a teacher, that at some point to me in your future, you're going to be in front of classrooms around the world trying to help people learn how to treat patients better um, and how to, you know, really, like you said, take accountability for yourself and your health. Uh, I think that message is important. A lot of people, and like I said, when you first said it, I was triggered like, oh boy, we're always being told to take accountability. Mm -hmm. But after I listen to you, I know what you're saying is true. We do have to be responsible for our whole We thing. have to do our part is, is basically, and we can't expect somebody else. And I tell my patients, when your blood pressure is sky high and I tell you to leave here and go straight to the hospital, don't run to the Walmart because you're going to piss me off. And I cannot care more about you than you care about yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, that's how I talk to them. And, you know, some patients are going to love my personality and some people are going to be like, oh, I can't, I, I don't like her. <laughs> as long as you know that you come from a place of love and you're doing it 
genuinely and you care about them. You know, I say the same thing. I'm not for everybody, but I know that right. if I'm for you, when you get it, you got it. So we just want to say right. thank you for the work that you do, for your energy, you know, for what you came to the show with. You're one of our friends now, so we're going to definitely have you up here again. Continue to be great, Queen. And, you know, thank you. We love, we love what you represent. That's right. And That's you right. all keep doing your thing. Um, it's amazing to watch. Um, sometimes it inspires me and makes me want to be more active um, and at least doing my part. I want to say that one year I was so caught up. That was the year of uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, that I went, took the training to be a poll worker at, at the uh, election station. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, we fall off the wagon. We don't do, we get caught up in our own little lives and busy little lives, but it's, you are inspiring people every day. So I hope you all just keep doing what you're doing. Well, you inspire us and we'll inspire you. Thank you. Thank you. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry, The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. 
This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I know, I can tell by um, by the way that Dr. Simone presents herself, how on the show, everybody is clashing because she's so confident and she wants to talk about accountability and she's very, she's, you know, I, I think we share a little bit of the like. Um, sounds familiar. She sounds like you a lot. A little like uh, you know, know every, we know everything about it all, right? And but you know, as you said, so long as it's coming from a place of love, um, I think it's important. And forget the show because I think the show that's cool and that's her a platform for her. But in her medical rooms, you know, and her bedside manner, as she said, that to me is what I was most interested in. And I hope that what people take from this conversation is, yeah. Like I said, she came from Nashville. You know, she has worked her way. She had the support of her parents helping her with her dreams. You know, Wallow said something the other day that I thought was so powerful. He's like, if your kids have these sort of, you know, wild, grandiose ideas, don't shoot them down, right? Like support them because if you support their dreams, you never know where it might go. And because of the fact that, you know, her father pushed her and said, no, you need to become a doctor so you can make money. And then her mom invested in her and did whatever was necessary. Because even though you get financial aid, going to Spelman still costs, it's still expenses all around. It's a penny. And her mom did that despite the fact that her dad left. So, you know, it's it's, it's encouraging and inspirational to know that no matter what, she kept pushing on, you know, and, and, and pushed her way through and people supported her, got her all the way to a school that supports black people important, you know, going to an HBCU. So by the time she made it, it, what it sounds like to me, by the time she made it to medical school, where she did experience racism, she already had embedded in her who she is, you know, so Spellman already gave her a good foundation and she used the rest of it as tools to get to where she is now. And where she is now is an important place because Black women and Black men need uh, medical physicians that help you not just with your whatever they're focused on, whether it's, you know, your JJ or your head, your ears, your eyes, whatever it is, the heart, but also looking at your life holistically. And so you know, the fact that she approaches it from that perspective, I think that's like really, really important. It's really, really important. No, it is. It is just you know, like you said, the level of confidence that she has, the energy is what got her through all those things. Just listening to the different levels of things that she went through. And she doesn't seem she seemed unscathed. She seemed like she was prepared. She didn't say, you know, when I walked into the room and they said, I, we don't want to see your kind. 
that it broke her. I mean, like she said, okay, I, I was fine with it, you know? And, and she continued to move on. Whatever it gave, whatever life gave her little lemons, she continued to make lemonade. So I love her energy. You know, I love her ability to continue on. Like she was as like explaining her in a room full of doulas, you know, as a doctor, it's like taboo kind of, because it's kind of like, even though they're supposed to work together, they just don't believe in modern medicine. They don't believe that there's a lot of things that um they have in common. So her still staying on her pivot in that I would love to have seen What's that conversation just like? seeing her just like, yeah, you know, well, because she's firm in her conviction, she believes what she believes. Right. You know, she work, she's educated. So, you know, I think she's have a lot of time to talk about it, but part of the issue with the doulas is not so much her as one doctor, but the system that she represents. Exactly. And exactly. so, you know, so I get it. I mean, that's a, that's actually a good follow-up convo, but do they have doctors from male parts? No. There's no doc, like how we have OBGYN, they don't have like the doctor for the male. Um, I mean, if you have an issue, you go to the doctor. I don't know exactly what they, they I probably they do. I just don't know. What is it called? Like, you know, we just go see the doctor. We got to go see the doctor and see something wrong. <laughs> okay. Thanks. That, you know. Okay. But, but on another topic, my, my I don't get it today. It's about something I've seen and we didn't get to talk about on the show yet. And it was 21 Savage. He made a statement. And he said, we were talking about Nas's new album and Nas, and I believe they were on Clubhouse. And you know, Nas dropped a classic album, album that I listened to. It was really dope. And over the last couple of years, Nas has constantly dropped projects, The King Disease One, Two, and Three, which I think are stellar pieces of work along with Hit Boy. And you know, it's released. So it was a conversation on Clubhouse. And he made a statement that just kind of threw me off. I just didn't get it. He said, he said Nas is irrelevant. He just has a um, consistent. Was it? He said consistent. He has a. He said he's irrelevant, but he has a consistent. And I didn't understand how do you get a consistent fan base if you're irrelevant, right? I didn't. I didn't really understand that. That like what makes what is the the criteria for irrelevancy? And I hear that a lot of times with a lot of younger artists. And I think we've been taught that. And, and, and I understood it when I was young, right? Because when I was young, 70s, 80s, that's when hip hop started, right? So hip hop was a young person's sport. I mean, a young person's um, field. But now hip hop turned 50 this year. Mm. So that means that people who were listening to hip hop at, at 20 in the 70s are damn near 70. Some of them are 70 mm. right now. You understand what I'm saying? So hip hop is way older. So the genre has spread out and the definition and, you know, different um, core groups listen to. And, and a lot of us are able to relate more than the people before us was because hip hop was young then. It was just one thing. So as we grew older, we started to adapt different pieces. We took pieces from blues. We took pieces from hip hop. We took pieces from rock and roll. And, and, and we're able to incorporate. And I think that's what Nas has been able to do. He's been able to recreate himself and, and even grab younger fans. Like a lot of younger people, my son knows Nas's music, you know what I'm saying, at 20. So 
he's able to continue to captivate. So I think that this premise of being irrelevant as you become an older artist, it just, to me, it doesn't really, I don't really get it. I don't understand it. It doesn't really make sense to me. I think we need to um, just kill that, no, that kill that um, mind state that because somebody's older that they're irrelevant, you know, and they, because they yeah. don't, because they don't I actually. Think the word was wrong. The word was wrong. And also, it was something else you said that I wanted to respond to. You said that, um, oh, uh, hip hop, you know, it evolved. I think a part of evolution is that it became much more cultural. It, it became fashion, it became food, it became everything, all the things you could think of. But I guess what I could say to, which by the way, I thought I saw somewhere that 21 Savage basically, um, you know, when being challenged on his word, he said something else and I have no idea what it is, but I think he not so much cleaned it up, but tried to correct whatever it is that people felt or what he said. So check that out. But anyway, um, I think like if you, even in my own life, like at 42, I am not irrelevant in any way, but there are younger people coming up behind me that will probably be, and they are in many ways, they're hot. Like, you know, I think about Tiffany Lofton. This is a young lady who, if people have to make a decision about like who they're going to call to organize certain things, I would tell them they should, if they could get her, they should go with her because she's got her finger more on the pulse on, in terms of like student debt and you know, issues that matter to younger people. But Tiffany also calls me every few days so that we can talk through what she's working on. So it's a yin and yang. I'm not trying to be the older person that just stays in the mix forever and, and does not allow an evolution of our younger people, activists, and, you know, we would say the same for artists and otherwise to grow and to come into their own but it doesn't make me irrelevant. What I do understand though, is this idea that a part of it is your fan, your, your supporters that have been with you, that will always be with you, which is a strong support base. But it doesn't mean that you're able necessarily to tap into the younger group of people or those who are sort of coming in. So, so, so the youth make you relevant? No, well, it's, I don't think it's youth even though I think youth represents time, right? And so what they will say in churches, I've heard pastors say, if there are no young people in your congregation, the church is dying because the older people are going to be out the door. And if you don't have new energy coming into the church, then it begins to lose sort of its uh, gravitas it loses its place that makes but that's what i'm trying to tell you so that so that means if you if if you got a if if a, if a church has a core fan base of 10 and 15,000 people and it, and it stays there right i mean if you got a core fan so how how could you ever be irrelevant with that kind of fan if you look at if you look at reverend reverend jakes right i don't i i can't i don't see the older he gets, I don't see his relevancy diminishing. 
I don't really but, see that. But, but I don't, I, so, so this is what I'm saying. I think the word relevant is wrong and I am unable to find a new word at this time. You know, words is like my thing that I'm always working on. What is the word that I want to say? Um, so relevance is not the right terminology, but, but even TD Jakes recently installed his daughter, uh, Sarah Jakes, over Women Art Thou, which is now changed to, I think, Women Evolve, because even he understands that as he gets older, yes, the members of his church will probably be with him forever, but it will be it will begin to die off if he does not bring the daughter's energy. I mean, that's, that's part of life. life. I think that's so I think he, that's how you become. That's how you stay relevant. If you if you're not incorporating if you're not incorporating the current energy and the current you know um, energy. Time, Mm -hmm. and things of that nature if you're not incorporating those things then of course you're going to die but i think if you have the ability to be able to incorporate those things and stay current in those things and attach yourself to the and, and bring out the newest young artists and, and see the new york i don't understand the level of well, how what, the reason why the reason why i'm only just trying to have grace for the fact that sometimes when we're trying to articulate something, we might not have the right language or even understand what it is we're saying. But when I think about the thought process, right? When I try to just come, just taking out the word irrelevant, because that's a bad word, because we could say 21 Savage is irrelevant, right? So somebody could say that right now. 40 or 50, it's like, I'm not listening to 21 Savage. Right. So everybody, so we go. So I don't think that that word is the right word, but I understand the concept of basically saying your fan base will be with you. However, you may not be able to tap into the new 18, 17, 18, 19, 20 year old, which is such a major part of. Yes, I don't know if that's true because if you, if you, if you got, if you tap into the, the 19, 20 year old, at 20 and you do it for two years and you don't hold on to them for two for more than two years uh, what does that really mean what, well, what that's actually but, but 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 what we're debating here is that i'm telling you irrelevance is a wrong word okay i'm just saying that looking beyond that and having a deeper conversation we know irrelevance is not the right word but looking beyond that there is certainly something to the idea that a part of, you said it, a part of staying relevant is knowing when your time it, to sort of cultivate your base, but make space for other people to come through the pipeline. That actually is a part of maintaining your relevance. So that's all I was going to say. With that said, Nas is one of my favorite artists. And I think- Artists. Artists. Artist. He's one, well, you know, you know I make up words. He's one of my <laughs> artists. And his album is dope. Go get the King Disease 3. And I don't, I don't, I don't see him dying out in relevance. And as long as we continue to have our feet in this soil and pay attention and listen and hear, we're never gonna be irrelevant. You're 21 Savage, pay attention, man. If you can do what Nas has done, if you can captivate audience for 20 plus years like Nas has done, you'll never be irrelevant. I'm not going to always be right. Tamika D. Mallory is not going to always be wrong, but we will both always, and I mean always, 
be authentic, have a happy gobble gobble Thanksgiving. Listen to Street Politicians on the Black Effect Network on iHeartRadio. And catch us every single Wednesday for the video version of Street Politicians on iWomen.tv. That's how we own it! Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.